0: All right. Philippians chapter one, if you're not there already, verse 12 is where we're going to start. But I want to begin by telling you a story. When I was in junior high, uh, everyone wanted to be on uh, Doug's team because Doug was the best athlete in our entire school, right? He's, you know, six inches taller than all the rest of us. He just shot up before everyone else. He's about 50 pounds heavier. Uh, apparently he was the best looking too because all the girls just, you know, the oh, Doug, right? You know I mean? It was, it's just kind of how it went. So it, during PE class, you wanted Doug to pick you for his team, or if he wasn't doing the picking, you wanted the person who picked Doug to pick you, because Doug always won. Now, it didn't matter what sport we were playing, Doug was always the winner. I remember we were playing basketball, you just throw the ball into him inside, he'd turn around, make a basket. Or uh, if you're playing, playing a dodgeball, then you definitely had to be on Doug's team, because he would knock People down with the ball, right? It's not just like a glancing blow, but I just remember seeing him hit a kid and the kid just would fly. Oh, you know, or you want to make sure, like if you were playing against him, that you didn't stand back against a wall because I saw him hit kids in the head and wham, you know, their head would bounce off the wall. It's terrible, but it's great if you're on the team with Doug because Doug would always win. That's why as kids we loved Rocky, you know, because Rocky would always win. We knew that Rocky would win. We knew Rocky would probably get beaten up pretty badly, but then he'd come back, right? And in the end, Rocky would win. And if you got to the end of the movie and Rocky's the hero and you love Rocky and Rocky didn't win, then you knew there'd be Rocky 17 because (laughs) Rocky always wins. How do you know that Rocky always wins? Because Sylvester Stallone writes the script. So Rocky always wins, right? Church, God has written the script and so God always wins. I was in a worship service uh, outside of Grace, it was a few weeks back, and the worship leader made that statement. He said, God always wins. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever thought about it in those terms, but God always wins. There may be setbacks or apparent defeats, but God always wins because God has written the script. In fact, the gospel message itself is an apparent defeat that turns around into this stunning victory for God. God always wins. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah. The Lord is speaking, and he said, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. My word will be accomplished. Church, God will win. The gospel will be proclaimed among all nations. There will be men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation around the throne because God has written the script. God wins. And the apostle Paul will tell the church in Philippi, therefore, proclaim the gospel boldly because God always wins. Proclaim the gospel boldly in all circumstances, because God always wins. I want you to read with me in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in this, I rejoice. Paul says, proclaim the gospel boldly, because God works even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Notice how he starts this paragraph. Now, brethren, I want you to know know about my circumstances. Uh, He has just uh, told them, thank you. Thank you that you have continuously participated with me in the gospel. And he says, now I want to tell you about how things are going with me. He doesn't actually recount all of those here because they already knew but it's probably helpful for us to kind of walk back through. What's going on here in the book of Philippians is that Paul is writing from a Roman prison. And he got to a Roman prison because he proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem. Proclaimed it in Jerusalem, and the Roman authorities arrest him, arrested him for causing the riot, even though he wasn't the one who actually caused it, the Jewish authorities had. So they arrested him, the Jewish authorities tried to plot against Paul to assassinate him, so he was taken by Roman guard down to Caesarea where for two years he had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in front of kings and Roman governors, but mostly he just sat there. And for, for two years he sat there waiting to be shipped to Rome. Finally shipped to Rome, he was put on a ship that eventually would sink. <laughs> he was shipwrecked, landed on an island, a circuitous route. He finally landed in Rome. And then for two more years, Paul was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. Notice what he says here. In chapter 13, he says, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has actually become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That is, my circumstances, Paul said, have turned out for the, the, literally the greater cutting forth of the gospel. You might have heard that I'm imprisoned. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't even imagine that anything can stop the progress of the gospel. Because even though I'm in prison, the gospel is going forth. How is it possible? Well, Paul was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day for two years. And if I imagine that, I go, oh my gosh, how how annoying and frustrating would that be? I mean, anytime you needed to do anything, you've got to take the Roman guard with you. 24 hours a day for two years. This Roman praetorian guard was 900 soldiers who were assigned to Rome to guard the city and the emperor. And what they would do is every four hours they would rotate. So every four hours, Paul got a fresh guard guarding him. So every four hours, Paul got to start a fresh presentation of the gospel. So I sat down yesterday, I pulled out my calculator, and I was like, okay, how many gospel presentations is that? If we assume that Paul slept eight hours a night, then he got to present the gospel three thousand times. All right, so for Paul, he's not like, oh my gosh, how annoying is this that I've got someone chained to my wrist twenty-four hours 24 hours a day for two years. Instead, he saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And in fact, many of those guards trusted Christ. The gospel made its way all the way into the household of Caesar. So Paul says, I rejoice even in the midst of my imprisonment because the gospel is going forth. Remember, Paul always wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. That's what he told the Romans when he wrote that letter. He just didn't imagine it would be in prison. But he said, well, I'll take advantage of this moment and proclaim the gospel. And then For Paul, in proclaiming the gospel, in the midst of his own suffering, he says the church in Rome now has exceedingly more courage to preach the word of God without fear. Seeing that the gospel wasn't hindered by Paul's imprisonment, seeing that Paul wasn't discouraged by his imprisonment, the church in Rome started proclaiming the gospel broadly. Because, church, when we see someone suffering for the gospel and they continue to proclaim the gospel... It's inspiring. I have uh, several books on my shelf. I'm going to show you a couple of them. I've got uh, one section that I call uh, the best of the best. And uh, one of the books on that shelf is Through Gates of Splendor. If you've never read Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliott, it's, it's an absolute must-read. You can probably get a dollar copy on Amazon. This is actually my grandmother's copy, Through Gates of Splendor. It's the story of uh, Jim Elliott and four of his friends, young men who went down with their families to Ecuador to share the gospel with the Alca Indians, and they were speared to death. They were killed by the Alca Indians. And then uh, Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, ended up going back with their little daughter and sharing the gospel, even with the people who speared her husband to death. And they experienced not just the story of the gospel, but the reality of deep forgiveness through her witness and the tribe almost in mass, follow Jesus Christ. And when the story made it back to the United States of America in 1955, hundreds and eventually thousands of young men and women decided that they would give their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ because of this example. It was Tertullian, the third century church father, who said, the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. When people are willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel, it inspires us to do the same. I have a friend, actually, who was just kicked out of a closed country for sharing the gospel. Somebody in his network turned him in to the authorities, and they brought him in about six months ago and interrogated him. And they asked him in the interrogation, which had to be incredibly frightening. They said, why are you doing this? Why would you bring your wife and your children? Why would you bring them to this closed country? Why would you put yourself at risk of being put in prison in this place? And he said, you know, Jesus told me that he's the bread of life. And if you had a friend who was starving, wouldn't you give them bread? I have to talk about Jesus. And these interrogators said, well, you don't think that we need that bread also, do you? And he said, that's why I'm here. Now, they didn't put him in prison. They released him and sent his family home, but he was willing to give all for the gospel. And when we hear those stories, and when the Roman believers watched Paul in prison suffering, and not becoming bitter or angry, but instead rejoicing in the opportunity to share Christ, it inspired them all the more so. Let's read that again. It says, now, most of the brethren, being now confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without Fear. The result, verse eighteen, Paul says, "What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in freedom or whether imprisonment, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice." Because Paul expected opposition to the gospel. Opposition to the gospel is the normal way that the gospel moves forth. In fact, that's why he chose that word, progress. Right? The greater progress of the gospel is literally the cutting forth. Or the cutting forward of the gospel, because the gospel always moves forward in the face of opposition. You remember, when, uh, remember when Paul uh, was on the Damascus Road and a light came down from heaven and it, Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus, you're persecuting me. And Paul believed and in the process of seeing this light from heaven and hearing the voice, Paul became blind. So he was taken to Damascus, and another man had a vision, Ananias. And God, uh, Jesus said, Ananias, I want you to go and pray for Paul so, so that he can receive his sight. And uh, you need to understand, because Ananias is a little hesitant. He's like, well, Paul's the one who's been killing all of us and, and imprisoning us. And he said, well, he, he's going to preach the gospel in front of, of kings and rulers, and, and I'm going I'm to take him places so that the gospel can go forth from him, and I'm going to show him what he's going to suffer. He said, Ananias, I'm going to show Paul what he will suffer. And in fact, Paul did suffer. Incredibly, keep your place here in Philippians and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And listen to this description that Paul writes of his life to this point in time. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Paul says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes across my back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, Often without food, in cold and exposure, I have suffered for the sake of the gospel, and yet I rejoice. In church, we should expect the same. We live right now in such a a comfortable culture for the gospel, that when any form of persecution comes, we're surprised, but we should expect the persecution will be greater in our lives as time goes on. Peter once wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Peter says, don't be shocked, don't be surprised. The normal way that the gospel has gone forward throughout all of the history of the church is in the midst of persecution. So, Paul would write to Timothy, he'd say, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will be inevitable. It will come upon you. So, if you want to avoid persecution, church, here's what you need to do. Take up a cause, but don't talk about Christ. If you take up a cause, a really good cause, but avoid doing it in the name of Jesus, the world will applaud you. If your cause is... Uh, clean water, or racial reconciliation, or feeding the poor, or whatever it may be, and you pursue that cause, and you avoid talking about Christ, the world is going to go, way to go. But if you do all of those things in the name of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. You will eventually be mocked and ridiculed. When you say, ultimately, the only hope even for this cause to be resolved is the name of Jesus, you will be persecuted. Persecuted. If you take up a cause in the name of Christ, realizing that Christ is ultimately the only hope of the world, even Jesus said, they will hate you. And the reason they'll hate you is because they hated me. But this cause will ultimately triumph because the cause is Christ, right? The ultimate cause is Christ. The only hope of the world is Christ. And so Paul could say, you know, I rejoice even in my sufferings, even in my hardship. Uh, it, when Paul took the gospel to the Galatian region, it was the first missionary journey, he said, the reason that I landed here among you and I stayed so long was actually because I, there was something wrong in my body. He doesn't tell us specifically what it was, but he was so sick and he was in such great need. He said, you didn't despise my bodily illness. Instead, you received me as a messenger from God. But Paul suffered. Right? The, the normal uh, aches and pains and troubles of the world, Paul suffered when Paul was floating around in the deep for a night and a day, and he was, he was, he was experiencing cold. He was experiencing the same cold that everyone else who was bobbing around in the Mediterranean was feeling. And when he was sick and he went to the Galatian region, he wasn't able to heal himself. God didn't say, sure, go ahead and heal yourself. You've healed others and you've raised people from the dead. Even heal yourself. And well, Paul just experienced it. And when Paul went without food, you know what he felt? Hunger. <laughs> just like everyone else. So whether it was persecution from outside or the normal difficulties of living in a broken and fallen world, Paul says, I can rejoice even in those because the gospel is going forth. So as he wrote to the Roman believers, we know this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What does he mean by that? What does he he mean by good? I'm, I'm assuming you've heard this verse before and you've probably heard it, you know, like slapped on as a Band-Aid when somebody's suffering, right? God causes all things to work together for good, so relax about your troubles. Is that what it means? No. What does Paul mean by good? Because from a, a human perspective, being shipwrecked and whipped 39 times and beaten with rods, from a human perspective, that's not good. But what Paul was saying here is this. When I have suffered, God has done two things. He's produced character within me, the ability to be enduring and patient and kind and even joyful and loving in the midst of suffering. God's created character in me, and God has caused the gospel to go forth even more powerfully in the midst of my suffering. Over the past few years, I've tried to be a little bit of a student of what's happened in uh, the church in China. You know, decades ago, when, when all of the missionaries were forced out of China and persecution came on the church, everyone thought, oh no, the church in China is going to collapse. And you know what happened? The church in China exploded. Right as, as Chinese leaders stepped up and, and they led the church and the church multiplied and they shared the gospel, even when they were facing imprisonment and loss of job, loss of schooling, even torture and death, the church exploded as a result. Now, was all of that persecution a good thing? No. But God took the evil thing and turned it into good. Because that's what a sovereign God can do. That's, that's what a God who has all authority and all power, who has written the script, can do. He can take things that are broken and evil and can make them into things that are good. Second book that should be on uh, your best of the best shelf is The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. Boom. Uh, you know that one, Noah? That's a good book, isn't it, buddy? I just reread this book. Uh, for, I don't know, seventh or eighth time that I've, I've read it. I just reread it the last two weeks. And it was interesting because uh, my son came into my office and he saw this on my best of the best shelf and he goes, why is that one there, Dad? Said, because this book inspires me. Uh, it's about uh, Corrie Ten Boom and her family, Dutch family that hid Jews in their house so that they wouldn't be taken away to concentration camps during World War II and exterminated. Uh, they were eventually caught, and so Corey and her uh, sister and her father uh, were shipped to a concentration camp. Their father died in the concentration camp. Uh, Corey and Betsy were eventually taken to a camp called Ravensbrook. And she tells a story in here about uh, when they arrived at Ravensbrook and they went into their their barracks. They walked in and then they immediately ran out because they were covered in fleas. And the fleas just covered their bodies and began to bite them. And uh, Betsy, who's the older sister, who in a sense really her, her attitude is what uh, transformed Corey's heart and really the hearts of many of the prisoners around. Corey said, uh, Betsy said, Corey, we need to stop and give thanks. And Corey's like, give thanks for what? She goes, well, let's give thanks that we have our lives. Let's give thanks that we're together because they'd been separated before. And then, you know, and Corey's like, okay, begrudgingly, all right, thank for our lives. All right, we're, we're thankful we're together. Yeah, that's a good thing. And then Betsy said, let's give thanks for the fleas. And Corey's like, <laughs> you've just gone too far. Why? Corey, Betsy said, God's told us, give thanks in in all circumstances. Let's give thanks, even for the fleas. So she goes, okay, thank you, Lord, for the fleas. Well, several months later, uh, they had had the opportunity to, um, somebody smuggled into them a a Bible in Dutch, so they would read it in Dutch and then translate it into all the different languages of the ladies in their prison, and in their barracks. And they got to pray with them, and they got to see... Uh, woman after woman trust in Jesus Christ, and the guards never harassed them, and they discovered months later it's because of the fleas. The guards wouldn't come into their barracks because of the fleas, and so they were able to proclaim Christ because of the fleas. Now, have you ever been covered in fleas? I have. Actually, like two weeks ago. It is, it's, absolutely, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, once again, the, the cats have supplied me with another story for you, an illustration. Um, you know, our Joy's cat had kittens, five kittens. Um, we kept them in the garage because they were tiny, and they all got fleas. There are fleas all over the garage. We've given them uh, all away, and, and I've thrown literally continuously thrown the other two out. There are no cats in the garage now, but if you walk in our garage, there's fleas everywhere. And, I man, I've set off all kinds of bombs. The, the pest guy, control guy has come, and he's sprayed already. And I've gotten spray. And I, I'm like, I can't. I know now you're like, I'm not going to their house. <laughs> but you walk in my garage, and there's fleas get all over your legs. And, and so right before you get to our garage, there's this little room. And um, it's, it's gotten really messy because it's, it's got all my stuff that should go in the garage right there. And Tristan's like, can I help you clean that up? I go, no, I'm just afraid to go in my own garage. I, if you have never been covered, like, walking with shorts and come, come out covered in fleas, it's horrifying. Like, it just, even now, it just makes my skin crawl. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. So can you imagine, imagine these ladies, they're not getting enough to eat. They don't have proper clothing. They're working like slaves. They walk in, they're covered with fleas. And Betsy says, let's give thanks. Why? Because she had, she had vision. She could see that God could do something beautiful through this horrible circumstance. That's what Paul means by good. He could look at life through the lens of the gospel. Could this thing further the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes, because God can do anything. He can take the worst of circumstances and further his cause, because he's written the whole script. He knows the end, and so in his power, and his strength, and his his authority, and his kindness, he takes even the worst of our circumstances, church, and he can make them produce good for the gospel. Listen to this perspective. This is from uh, what Joseph said at the end of the book of Genesis speaking to his brothers. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And you remember the story. His brothers had sold him into slavery to Egypt. Uh, and then he uh, had, had been uh, falsely imprisoned. He eventually rose to power alongside of pharaoh. He rescues not just uh, Egypt from famine, but also his own people from famine. And as he's about to die, his brothers are, are afraid, afraid that he'll be angry and bitter. And he said, you know, Look, let's be realistic. What you did was evil. But God produced good from it. He's not calling evil good. He's saying God can create good from evil. And if we look at all of our circumstances through this lens of the gospel, we can say that sometimes, even in our suffering, that's the best way sometimes for the gospel to move forward. And so Paul can say, that's good. And in that I rejoice. Therefore, boldly proclaim the gospel, even when you're suffering, even when you're struggling, because it causes the gospel to go forth. Second, Paul will say, proclaim Christ boldly, because God speaks through imperfect messengers. Turn back again to Philippians chapter 1, in verse 15. Paul says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Verse 15, again, notice he says, Some, to be sure, some of whom, well, look at the beginning of verse 14. Most of the brethren who are in Rome, some of the brethren who are in Rome, are actually preaching Christ from envy and strife. See, these are actually, these are believers in Rome who are preaching Christ from impure motives. Because Satan has two strategies with which he attacks the church. Persecution from outside and dissension and division from inside. Satan is always looking for a way to destroy the church. And if he can't do it, From the persecution that comes outside, he will create dissension inside. And Paul says, there are some who are actually preaching Christ from envy and strife. Who are these people? I mean, when you read this passage, you go, really? Who are they and what would drive them to do this? We know this. Uh, They're not what we normally call Judaizers. Paul's going to talk about Judaizers in Philippians chapter 3. That is, Jewish people who have believed in Jesus but also think that they have to keep the law and they have to tell others to keep the law. So it's not just a free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, it's also your good works. So they're adding good works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul addresses them in Philippians 3. He also addresses them in Galatians 1 where he said this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He says, look, somebody screws up the gospel then I pray that the condemnation of God comes down upon them and they are unable to preach any longer. Right, Galatians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 3, these are people who are adding works to the gospel. In Philippians 1, he's talking about people who are actually preaching the message of the gospel, free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, but their motives are to discourage Paul. What's going on here? Well, apparently... Remember, Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, but now he's arrived in Rome and there are many more people trusting Christ and these spiritual leaders who had already been in Rome are becoming jealous and envious of the fact that people are trusting Christ through Paul. And so now they're sharing the gospel even more, motivated by taking people back into their fold. Can you imagine churches being competitive like that? That That's purely sarcastic. Can you imagine believers speaking inside, division from inside. The church is being torn apart. If Satan can't do it from the outside, he will do it from the inside. And he's always attacked God's people in this way. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. Remember that Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt, but as they exited Egypt, the Egyptian army chased after them And God destroyed the Egyptian army. Then they were attacked by the Amalekites, and they were attacked by the Moabites, and they were attacked by the Ammonites. And every time that these greater, stronger, larger uh, nations and their armies came against them, God destroyed all of their enemies, right? But they they eventually were not able to go into the promised land. Why? Not because of stronger foreign armies, but because of dissension inside. They sent some of their leaders to go spy out the promised land. They came back. The majority of them came back and said, we can't go in. Uh, The people are too big. God must have led us into the wilderness just to kill us. And they create all of this dissension and disunity inside and against Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership. And the, the nation just begins to crumble and fall apart. And they're not allowed to go into the promised land because of the internal conflicts. Church, we should expect... That if we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will experience persecution from the world, but also that Satan will try to get inside of the church and create disunity. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul addresses the first problem in the Corinthian church, and he said this Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? No, Christ has not been divided. What is it that unifies the church, capital C, right? all of us? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that separates us? Usually it's minor doctrines or personality conflicts. But if we can agree that the gospel is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that in his death he bore our sins on the cross, not his own debt, but ours, Paid the penalty and being raised from the dead, God proved that he accepted that sacrifice of Jesus and that he can give us life in the name of Jesus and all that we have to do is believe. That's the gospel. And when we believe that and we focus on Christ, we become unified. And we'll talk more about that when we hit Philippians chapter 2 because that's probably the greatest issue that the Philippian church was struggling with. And it's been one of the greatest issues that the church has battled with throughout all of the centuries. We are one because we are one in Christ. Christ. And we should expect persecution, and we should expect that, God will try, or that Satan will try to divide the church. And one of the most remarkable things about the story of the Bible is this, that God continues moving his message forward even through broken and fallen and divisive people. Even through broken people, God will accomplish his story. The script is written, we know how it will end, and yet God is in the middle of doing it through people who are completely imperfect messengers. Think about it, why did God choose Abraham? He wanted to start a nation, and so he chose a guy that was old and had no kids. (laughs) Really? This doesn't seem like a very good strategy. And he needed someone to be the spokesman for the nation, and he chose Moses, who, who had a stuttering problem and didn't want to be in front of people. Why did he choose Abraham? Why did he choose Moses? Why did he choose Samson to be a judge? Samson had a big problem with lust. Why did he choose Solomon? Man, he he had all the problems, right? Solomon's just an absolute mess. Complete materialist, loves stuff. He had uh, substance abuse problems. He had uh, sexual issues. I mean, Solomon's just a he's a mess. Why Solomon? Why Peter? Right? All Peter knows how to do is fish and talk, and he chose Peter. What? Why Peter? Paul would say, why do you choose me, chief of sinners? Why do you choose you? Why do you choose me? Because when God works through us to advance this story that will conclude as God has determined, then all of the credit goes to him. All of the honor, all of the glory, all of the credit goes to him because he advances his inevitable story through broken, sinful messengers. We say, thank you, God. For using us. Notice Paul's response here. Verse 18. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in freedom or imprisonment, whether in health or in suffering, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That is, Paul would look at all of his life through the lens of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment... But you're back in junior high, and it's not that you get Doug on your team, who's you know six inches taller and 50 pounds heavier and super handsome. Instead of getting Doug, you get Michael Jordan. Wouldn't that be amazing to get Michael Jordan? Uh, you know, in 1990, um, Michael Jordan scored his uh, personal career high in a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers. He scored 69 points. It was amazing. And on that same team, there was a rookie. His name was Stacy King. And after the the game, they interviewed Stacey King. And uh, Stacey King said this. He said, I will always remember this night as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. (laughs) Jordan got 69. Stacey King got one point. Imagine having Michael Jordan on your team. Not Doug, but Michael Jordan. And you're playing uh, A&M Consolidated Middle School. Ah, pretty fearless. I'm kind of I'm confident what the outcome will be. We'll probably get a few bad calls from the ref. A few of us might even get injured along the way. might be a little, a little bit of a, a bumpy road, but the, it's inevitable. Michael Jordan will win because he always wins against junior high kids. Church, we're on the team that is captained By the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of the universe, he always wins. God always wins. The gospel always wins. God's story has been written, and we are just living in the midst of it. And so we're told, just be bold and courageous. Why would you fear? You know how the story ends. Therefore, proclaim Christ boldly. As we close, what I'd like for us to do is take a few minutes and pray for our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors who don't know Jesus. And pray for ourselves that we would be bold in sharing the truth of the gospel. I remember last spring as we were going through our, our every knee process, we put some of these boards up, um, and they there were a visual reminder of, of why we're doing this thing we call church. So that every day we would live for the gospel. So that every neighbor and every nation could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we took a moment and we wrote names of people that we want to see trust Christ. I put the boards back up here, here, and in the back as well uh, as a visual reminder Uh, the friends that we've been praying for, I put a couple markers out, so if you want to walk up and write a new name on there that you didn't get to write before. And as we close, what I'd like for us to do is pray for those people. Or if you didn't get a chance to write a name, walk up and and write the name. And pray for ourselves that we would be bold and courageous in the gospel. So let's take a few moments quietly and pray for those people, pray for ourselves, and then our worship team's going to come up and they're going to close us. Let's pray. Father, I do pray uh, that we would be courageous in our witness, that we would remember that nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that uh, you would lead us into uh, moments with friends and family, uh, coworkers, uh, those in our neighborhood who need to hear the message of the truth of the gospel, and uh, that you just give us joy, even in, in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of suffering, Give us joy in knowing that there's an inevitable triumph of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for uh, giving us this truth, revealing it to us, and filling us with your spirit for this task. Father, I thank you that you have revealed that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that you have written the end of the story, and there will be men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation before your throne worshiping, and that in this moment, we have the privilege to joyfully, and courageously, and boldly participate in what you're doing in the world. And so I pray, Father, even this week, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, infuse us with a new courage and a new boldness. A fresh longing to see our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers know life in Jesus. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Boldly sharing the name of Jesus. We'll see you next week.